This hospital medicine podcast is going to deal with credentialing and remember why this process exists in the first place. Credentials is the first step in protecting patients. Appointing excellent doctors is the initial quality action taken at a healthcare facility. The hospital and its physicians need to trust that patients will be well cared for under the guidance of the applying provider. Other considerations are protecting the organization and setting up the hospital for success. And sometimes it is necessary to protect the practitioner from themselves if they desire to do something more than their scope of practice and training. In the most extreme cases, when a credentialing committee does not do their job well, it can even result in murder. The horrifying consequences of the serial killer Dr. Michael Swango was in large part due to a major failure in credentialing at multiple hospitals he worked at. Mistakes in credentialing happen for two major reasons. There's factual errors provided by the applicants and then decision errors by the credentialing committee. The risk of making a bad decision rises when the essential due diligence is not completed. We can't just rely solely on references supplied by the applicant. Applicants cherry-pick their peer references. An absence of unfavorable information should not be the bar we strive for. Attempting to find omitted information is a responsibility of both the organization's medical staff services and the physicians who are overseeing the granting of privileges. A comprehensive process is needed to verify information. For example, failing to query the National Practitioner Data Bank at the time of appointment and every reappointment is a failure in process. One of the first questions the credentialing committee must assess is competency in the field the applicant is applying for. How is your performance regarding the privileges you are requesting? Past performance often predicts future performance. Have you proven that competence recently? And if so, how many times? Just because you did something in residency two or three decades ago doesn't mean you are ready to do it unsupervised today. However, knowledge and recent performance are far from the only considerations. With nearly a million doctors in the United States, there are also plenty of doctors who have had substance abuse issues, previous felonies, and all sorts of other problems humans can have. Likewise, we must remember that licensure only partly ensures qualifications and training. Licensure is the minimum standard for credentialing of clinicians. We don't want to restrict people from performing the skills they could do safely, and we don't want people practicing beyond their abilities. And that's why one of the goals of a credentialing committee is to avoid being too liberal or too rigid. Like much in medicine, if the needs of the patient are at the heart of decisions, committees will usually make wise decisions. If conflicts of interest get in the way, political and economic interests can trump honest opinions about skills and competency. It's not just about keeping bad doctors off of a medical staff. We need to be cognizant that not credentialing a good physician 
is also not in the best interest of your patients in your community. You know, Brigham Young once said, any young man who is unmarried at the age of 21 is a menace to the community. And while I don't know if that's true, I do think that keeping good doctors out of a community is a menace to the community. And that's why doing the process of credentialing and doing it right is so important. Now, let's talk about some specific things that credentialing committees have to deal with. One of those things is waivers. Waivers are frequently requested when privileges are desired by somebody who doesn't fit the usual eligibility requirements. Some hospitals have provisions for a waiver in their bylaws, while other hospitals don't. One question the Credentials Committee needs to consider is, is this doctor so extraordinarily qualified to step outside your normal rules? The burden of proof lies on the applying physician to prove that. Contemplating waivers must take many factors into account. What is the nature of the disqualifying factor? How significant of an issue is it? If the issue was not finishing residency, that would be a big issue to overcome at most hospitals. If the issue is letting board certification lapse and a doctor plans to sit for the exam in three weeks, that might be worth considering if your needs are urgent for that specialty. But if there is somebody you consider questionable in quality and they don't meet the standard of being extraordinarily qualified in your mind, and let's say you don't think that person is going to pass their board exams, don't grant a waiver. Let's talk a little bit about temporary privileges. Granting temporary privileges is appropriate for an acute care need only when the applicant's file looks clean and the proper due diligence has been completed. Verification with primary sources should not be overlooked because of time pressures. Pressure is a word tightly connected to temporary privileges. Groups want doctors to help them with call burden. Sometimes groups will explain they already started paying the salary of the applicant and they are going to lose lots of revenue if the doctor can't do heart casts or surgery in the hospital. Other times, the hospital desperately needs that specialist for patient care, or they might need to put a major service line like trauma on hold. Despite those pressures, verifying education, references, data bank checks, insurance, and licenses must happen even in times of pressure. I once made a highly specialized surgeon cancel a vacation two days before leaving because there was no way to adequately get the verification done for a doctor he wanted to cover him. He and his wife may hate me for life, but it was the right call. And interestingly, we never gave the covering doctor temporary privileges for later dates as he requested because red flags and care competency were actually found. Now, understandably, Doctors get frustrated when the turnaround time for verification is slow. Improving these processes often needs attention, but you can't just eliminate verification because it is sluggish. Well-done credentialing has value, and don't work around a process that is providing value. Now, one of the more difficult 
questions a credentialing committee has to sometimes take on is the credentialing of doctors with questionable behavioral history. Are you a team player that others can work with? An overlooked issue during credentialing is that of conduct. When a physician with behavior problems gets privileges, the credentials committee has just made it everybody else's problem. How disruptive is the doctor? The problem is the gray areas. When the provider with major anger or a lack of clinical skills comes to the credentialing committee, that's usually an easy decision. When a good doctor has anger outbursts every five months, the decision is a little bit harder. There are also docs we all know are less than ideal, but they lack a paper trail to prove it. That puts the credentials committee in a tough spot. We always strive for consistency in our decisions. Conduct should be a criteria for being on a medical staff. It is hard not to take into consideration if the doctor is profitable, a hard-to-find specialist, or a member of your medical staff for decades, but you still need to attempt to treat everyone equally. Ideally, the most successful orthopedic doctor in town needs to be treated the same as a pediatrician who rounds on a few children each year. Assessing low-volume practitioners raises unique questions. The fact is, unconscious bias between those you know well and those you barely know will affect credentialing. The importance of trying to minimize bias is a recurrent hospital theme and cannot be overstated. Now, when you don't have enough information to make a decision, you have two choices. One, don't make the decision, or two, make an uninformed decision. Compromise and external pressures, such as trying to make a prominent practice happy to fill a call need, will affect judgment. Hindsight will show that uninformed decisions will result in unwise decisions. Let's talk for a moment about credentials files. Individual files are proprietary documents of the organization. A doctor does not have a right to her file. If you decide to allow the file to be reviewed, make sure it is done under supervision. Don't let the doctor remove documents or make copies, such as with a cell phone. There may be reason to prevent a physician from reviewing their own file. If there are sensitive documents from a nurse or a colleague, that's a justifiable reason to deny access. Otherwise, you risk retaliation against those people by the physician reviewing her file. And if the request for references says on it that their reference will be kept confidential, the physician should not be allowed to review those references. Okay, and switching gears a little bit, let's talk about credentialing of advanced practice professionals. These are the people that include nurse practitioners, midwives, physician assistants, psychologists, and several others. State laws do vary on what advanced practice professionals are allowed to do. Make sure you understand your state law before making decisions about advanced practice professional privileges. Culture has a large influence on how policies are developed. Doctors and hospital governing bodies become concerned about a term we call 
scope creep. When an advanced practice professional starts doing more complex care than expected or authorized through credentials, physicians are usually the ones teaching the advanced practice professional those skills, and this particularly seems to happen in procedural specialties like the ER or surgery. It is guaranteed that advanced practice professionals will start asking for privileges previously only done by physicians. At a very minimum, make sure any advanced practice professional starting a new procedure has had enough direct supervision from a physician to prove competency. Patients need to be consented appropriately when somebody is learning a procedure. Protect the patient, the hospital, and the supervising physician, and the advanced practice professional when new skills are being learned and privileged. All right, as we start to wrap this topic up, let me give you some dogma I abide by. First is following policy and having consistency in how rules are applied. That's the key to a well-functioning process. Another key is having the right person helping you in medical staff services. Medical staff services collects and summarizes the initial information. The department chair, the credentials chair, or the chief medical officer then needs to have a low threshold for picking up the phone. Further interviews and data collecting should be the norm when discrepancies or red flags are raised. Triggers for doing that start with the information that medical staff services gathers. Now, the Healthcare Quality Improvement Act protects any person providing information in effort to improve quality of care. An exception to that protection is knowingly providing false information about a person, meaning if the goal of another physician is to destroy a competitor with lies, that's not protected under the Health Quality Improvement Act. But despite the protections of the Health Quality Improvement Act, some doctors still don't want to talk with chief medical officers and credentials chairs about other physicians. So if something cannot be verified via outside facilities or talking with other providers about the applicant who the applicant has worked with, the burden is then put on the applicant to do that verification. And by the way, one good tip is to always ask legal advice from your hospital attorneys whenever there are questions. There are going to be times when a committee is uncertain about an applicant and wants to give the provider a chance. It should put conditions on the physician. That may be periodic performance evaluations if clinical skills are questioned, or maybe regular drug tests if there is a distant history of prior substance abuse, or maybe regular monthly meetings with the chief medical officer if there have been prior behavioral concerns. When I have been in my role as a chief medical officer and the credentials committee or the medical executive committee demands monthly meetings for maybe a three or six month period with the physician about behavioral concerns, it's amazing how effective that actually is. All right, finally, remember the difference between confidence and competence. Just believing you can do it is confidence. If you do it with excellence, 
That is competence. You've been listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Perrott.